So if you would, please turn uh, to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be working our way through the chapter today. Let me pray for us, and then we will dig in. Heavenly Father, we love You and we love Your Word. And we understand just how important it is that we know Your Word and that we seek You in Your Word. And so we have come here to do that. I thank You for the wonderful time of praise that we have enjoyed already. Thank You that we can come together and be led by skilled musicians and we can pour our hearts out before You in thanksgiving and we can sing of Your wonderful works and the glory of Your name. And thank You that that is pleasing to You, God. That is acceptable and that the Bible says that You are enthroned upon the praises of Your people. How marvelous, how glorious is that. So now I ask as we humble ourselves before Your Word and as we study through Acts chapter 8, please cause Your words to come to life for us today. May Your Holy Spirit move in this room and minister to the hearts and the minds. And I pray that I would preach Christ and that I would teach Your Word accurately and reverently and with um, great passion and conviction, with love, Lord. And so You know all the needs in this room, Father. You know where everyone is at. And I pray, God, that You would speak to hearts and minds today through Your Word. Be glorified, Father. Be honored. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So I've titled the sermon, True and False Believers. I'm going to do a comparison between Philip and then uh, Ethiopian eunuch uh, towards the end of the, the chapter. And you'll see what I mean as, as we work our way, way through it. So what has happened up to this point? Jesus, in the very beginning of the book, said that He was going to go. He rose from the dead. He's speaking to the disciples. He said He was going to go back to, to heaven. He was going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, but He was going to send His Holy Spirit. That would be the promise of the Father, that the disciples were to wait for that moment. That time would come, and it did. The Holy Spirit did fall. The disciples all received the Spirit. We know the story in Acts chapter 2. They began to speak in tongues and... And uh, Peter preached this incredible sermon and thousands of people came to Christ. And then it was on. After that, the, the apostles were going out in power and they were preaching, teaching, healing. And uh, we saw different scenes. Uh, they were being arrested. They were being taken before the council. And last week we saw Stephen. He was the first one to die, Stephen the martyr. And he was moving uh, with great power, great wisdom, and he was one of the seven men that had been chosen, if you'll remember, to serve tables, to meet the practical needs of the church. Today we're going to be looking at another one of those guys, Philip. But at any rate, they brought some false charges against um, Stephen, and so Stephen went all the way back to Abraham and worked his way from Abraham to Christ to show them that they actually were the ones who had a consistent history of resisting the work of God, rejecting the Holy Spirit, as it were. And they were so offended at this, they didn't repent of it, they didn't receive what he said, they killed him instead. And so that's more or less where we left off last week. And so that is where Acts chapter 8 picks up. So with that, let's look at verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. 
Now, you may recall that Jesus had told them that they were going to be witnesses to him in Jerusalem and Samaria to the ends of the the earth. But at this point, they were still very much in Jerusalem. They weren't going out. They weren't doing what uh, the Lord had told them to do. They were staying localized right there. And so persecution came. And as I said, it started off in the previous chapter, and that's where it picks up. And we saw last week that there was a guy there named Saul who was holding the coats of the people who stoned Stephen. And now it says here that this man Saul was present and that he was consenting to Stephen's death. So now we know where he stands. He's very much for this. He is uh, agreeing that this should happen. Saul, who we now know as Paul, at this point his name was Saul, and he hated Jesus. He hated the church. He hated Christians. And he was a fierce persecutor of the church and he was present at this point well God used this calamity on the church to move the church out as I said the church did not go out as they were supposed to so God got them out and he undoubtedly used persecution God was sovereign in this moment that's just a fancy way of saying that God is in control God has the ability to use seemingly terrible situations for good. And I think as Christians in here, most of us know what that's all about. Most of us as Christians have that testimony. We can look back and say, man, God totally used this awful situation in my life for good. I I could have never imagined how He might do that, but indeed He did. And so God is in control. Nothing surprises God. Nothing is too big for God. Nothing throws God off. And God is able to use what seems to be the most terrible of circumstances for good for us and to further, to advance His his purpose and His cause. And that is a glorious thing that we have to rest on. No matter what we may be going through right now, whatever difficulty you might be experiencing, God is able and is most definitely using it. Nothing is wasted with God. If you're a Christian, if you believe in the Lord, God doesn't waste anything. Any kind of difficulty or hardship, He will use that to conform you into the image of His Son. He will use that to to bring glory to Himself. He will use that to advance His kingdom. And it's so sweet when we look back and we can see how God did that, when God did that. When we're going through it, it's painful. When we're going through it, we can't see. We don't understand You know, I had a brother tell me one time I was in just the deepest, darkest place of my life. And I knew that he had been through some very serious things. And he said, you know, the light is going to break through again. The light will break through those clouds. And it's amazing, after the fact, hindsight, you look back and see what God has done, what God accomplished in the difficulty and the hardship. And then it's it's, it's a glorious thing. You can celebrate and rejoice in that. It's not so easy in the midst of it, though, in the middle of it. That's just a word for somebody in here today. God is able to use the hardships in your life. And He does do that. So that was what was happening here. And uh, as I said, Saul was vehemently attacking the church. He was like a madman on a rampage. Some people have said that you know something really snapped <clears throat> excuse me, with Saul at Stephen's death. You know, it said his face was like an angel. And... Uh, something definitely happened and Saul went crazy. He was like a madman ravaging the church. And it's hard for me to, to, when I think about what I know about Paul now, as long as I have known Paul and uh, all these years of, of my walk and I have 
uh, studied the the scriptures and looked at Paul's character and his heart. It's hard for me to picture this, and it was such a such a thing that followed Paul throughout all of his his ministry and life is that he was a persecutor of the church and that he actually caused people to blaspheme the Lord, and that was something that really. Uh, stuck with Paul in a lot of ways. He really uh, was in some ways haunted by that, I, I think. But we see him in full force here at this point. So, the word does indeed go out. The word begins to move. And so now we're going to uh, see this guy named Philip, this character Philip, and he is going to go to Samaria. So verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracle which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was a great joy in that city. So as I had mentioned, Philip was one of the seven. We know Stephen was one of the seven uh, in the uh, study from last week. And now we're, we're going to see Philip here. And he was told to go out to Samaria, and he did. And he began to uh, move with signs and wonders. And uh, many people were being healed. Demons were cast out. There was great joy happening in that place. And it's kind of just interesting to consider that Philip is not an apostle. Philip was not an apostle. Uh, He was someone who was just called to serve tables. He was certainly an evangelist, but he was still moving in signs and wonders. So evidently this was really happening on a larger scale than we might realize at this time in the church, more than just the apostles. Well, I thought it would be good for us at this point to look um, at a map. And as we move more into Acts, we're going to be using a lot of maps, especially as we look at uh, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys around. So... Um, at this point, they're down in Judea, they're in Jerusalem in that area, and that's where they have been for the most part. And so as the persecution broke out, now we see Philip comes all the way up here to Samaria. And in a little while, we're going to see that he goes from Samaria down to Azotus, and then from there he's going to go up to Caesarea. I don't want to bring the map back up at that point, so I'm just kind of scouting it ahead of time so you guys can see that. So they have gone from Judea up to Samaria. As I said, at this time in history, there's really three major regions. So you have Judea, Samaria, Galilee. This is where Jesus spent most of his time, most of his ministry right here around the the Sea of Galilee. And then the church really breaks forth here in Judea. And this is the first time that the gospel starts to go north up to Samaria. Now this is significant because... The Jews were very suspicious of these Samaritans. In a lot of ways, they didn't like the Samaritans. Uh, earlier on in their history, when the Jews were taken captive to Babylon, most of the people of any notoriety, any uh, means, they were taken out, and the poorest of the poor were left there. And then a lot of pagans were brought from outside the country in, and they, they uh, intermarried, and that was where the, the um, Samaritans came from. And so... Uh, they were kind of considered <clears throat> the outcasts, the half-breeds even. That's an ugly word, but that's kind of how they saw them. And so uh, this was very interesting to them that now the gospel is going north here up into Samaria and that it's really having an effect and that people are responding. There are great miracles and signs, a lot of action happening here. So now we're going to meet a guy named Simon, Simon the Sorcerer. <clears throat> and what I want to try to look at here is we're going to look at Simon, 
And it appears that Simon actually puts his faith in the Lord, that he makes a profession of faith, that he becomes a believer. At least it looks that way at first. But as time goes on, it becomes more and more questionable. And we're going to talk about that. And then I mentioned the Ethiopian guy that we're going to see later in the chapter. I want to look at these two individuals. I want to read between the lines a little bit. And the Scriptures don't tell us flat out if these guys were truly, genuinely born again or not. But I think if we kind of look at it, we can <clears throat> kind of see for ourselves what we, what we think about that. And I think there are lessons that we can draw out as we go that really apply to us. So verse 9. There was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So this guy Simon was a sorcerer. He had great influence over the people, so much so they didn't say that he had power from God. They actually said that this man is the power of God. That's pretty incredible. And so in your notes there, I'll just read this if you want to follow along from uh, David Guzik. He talks a little bit about uh, the significance of this uh, sorcery, this sorcerer. So the specific wording indicates that Simon was a magi. In the ancient world, there was a class of astronomers and scientists known as magi. We think these were the guys that actually came to see Jesus, um, the wise men who came from the east. Moving on, though, it says, But local wizards and sorcerers also took the title. They used it to prey on the ignorance and superstitions of the common people. That's very important to note. And then the second point there, Ramsey, Ramsey describes the Magi, the lower sort who appealed to the widespread superstition, uh, superstition of the ancient world as the strongest influence that existed in that world and one that must either destroy or be destroyed by Christianity. And so it's really fascinating. This, uh, it would seem as though this guy was someone who appealed to the superstition of the people. He was someone who had great influence and power over the people because of it. They really bought into this power that he supposedly had. They considered him to be the power of God. And now we're going to see this come right into direct uh, confrontation with the power of God. You know, here in that commentary, he makes that point that this uh, influence must either destroy or be destroyed by Christianity. That's a fascinating uh, comment there. And so, that's, that's Simon the sorcerer. Um, let's see what happens. Verse 12 here. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. So clearly, Philip's ministry here is having a great effect, and people are amazed by what they are seeing, what is happening. And they are believing on the message. They are believing in the name of Jesus, and they are being baptized. But what's incredible is we're told that Simon does the same thing. Simon sees these things, he's amazed by these miracles and these signs that are done, and he believes, and he's baptized. 
it certainly would appear as though this is legitimate, that this is valid. That, that's the kind of the sense that you would have when you read this. But I just wanted to draw your attention to one thing here. Simon was amazed by the miracles. Now I have to ask myself, why would he be amazed by the miracles? If he was indeed a miracle worker, if he was indeed the great power of God that they were saying that he is, why would he be amazed by these miracles and so intrigued by it? So I have to wonder if, if there really was any legitimacy to what he was doing at all. And, or if somehow he was just manipulating the people or somehow he had the ability to pull the wool over their eyes. And what he seems to be attracted to, I think, is the power that he sees, the miracles that are happening with Philip. And, and I think that's a little bit of a hint to us at this point as to why he is now following after Philip. So, verse 14 now Peter and John are going to come onto the scene, the apostles. Verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet He had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of confusing. Uh, this is kind of a challenge to us. I'm going to try to work my way through this a little bit with you. But first off, we note that word had spread that wonderful things were happening here, that the gospel had come down to Samaria, or up I should say. And so the apostles send uh, Peter and John there, probably to kind of check this out. Because as I said, they were suspicious, I think, at this point about the Gentiles in particular. The church was really localized to the Jews. And so um, they're going up to see what is really going on. Is, is God really moving in the midst of these people? So they're there to, to verify this and to validate this. So they get there, that they see indeed these wonderful things are happening. But then this uh, interesting phrase, the Spirit had yet, not yet fallen on them. They had only been baptized in Jesus. And so they lay hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. Wonderful things happening here. So what does this mean? How is it that these people had put their trust in Christ, they had been baptized, but they had not yet received the Spirit? Well, I'll tell you clearly what this does not mean. This is not saying that you can be saved, that you can be born again, but not have the Spirit. The Scriptures are very clear about this. There, there's really no way around that. When you put your trust in Christ, when you believe on the Lord, you are born again and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives life. You understand? You're not born again if you don't have the Holy Spirit within you. And so, it's not to say that. Um, some have said that they, they probably weren't really converted at this point that they had not truly embraced Christ, that they had not truly repented of their sins or, or put faith in the Lord. And so now at this point, they're, they're experiencing the fullness. I'm not so sure about that. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily buy that. Some have said that this is just a unique situation, a one-time event for, for the people here, that they, um, this is all brand new. The church has just been born. The Holy Spirit is moving and... So this is kind of like a validation of the fact that now the Holy Spirit is being given to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans. So they have received. That, that's kind of one of the more common views that you may hear. But I think lastly, and what I would tend to lean towards, this is consistent with 
the doctrine that we've been talking about, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that these people put their trust in Christ, that they were baptized, that they believed on the name of the Lord, that they had the Holy Spirit in them, but they were prayed for by the apostles and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And I would say most likely that's what has happened here. And as I have mentioned before, we call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe that a person is born again. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are saved. uh, And that is done. But that there seems to be this additional working that we see where someone, the Spirit comes upon them and they are uh, baptized. You know, we, we use that word pretty regularly, baptized, to be immersed would be really the literal translation of that word. So you're, we're immersed down into water. We would say we've been baptized, water baptism. When we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we say that the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And in a sense, we're immersed into the Spirit. And so um, this would be for the purpose of being a witness. You know, we believe that the disciples had the Holy Spirit But Jesus said that you need to wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. You're going to be baptized with the Spirit and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, all around the world. And and that's what happened. And so I would say it's as simple as that. The language can seem a little confusing at first. We know what it doesn't mean. I'm pretty confident about what it does mean. And that that would be uh, how I would interpret that. And so um, that is to say there was the additional work of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that they did receive. And we believe that that's available today. We encourage folks to to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not some weird, freaky thing. Okay, I've never seen anyone pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fall on the ground and convulse or do any kind of crazy stuff. We just believe that, that the Lord has made something available to His church that we desperately need. I need everything that I can get from God. Don't you feel the same way? And so uh, if there is something there for me that the Lord has, I want it. And so we encourage people, pray. Pray for that filling, that that infilling, that baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have people up here at the end of the service that are available to pray for you guys each week. That's one of the things that we would often encourage you to come up and receive prayer for, that you would be baptized in the Spirit so you can walk in the fullness of what God has for your life, so you can have that victory, so that you can be that witness, so that you can be... All of those things that, that the Lord's heart is for you to be. All right. <clears throat> well, now we're going to see a little bit more about Simon. This is a little more telling at this point. Simon wants to come up and actually buy this. Simon sees what's happening. He sees what the apostles are doing. He's very intrigued. He's amazed. And so he comes up and he asks Peter if, he can, if he'll sell this ability to Simon to be able to lay hands on people like this and for them to receive the Spirit. So verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this manner, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. 
So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. All right, so Simon tries to buy this power and he is severely rebuked for it. This is like a super huge red flag to me right here. It seems to me like this was what he was really wanting all along. This was why, you know, he was the guy with all the power. He was the one that was moving the people. They, they saw him uh, that way. And then Philip comes on the scene and now everybody's looking at him. And now the crowd is moving over to Philip. And it seems like Simon kind of went in that direction. And he's amazed by what Philip's doing. And now he comes to Peter and says, hey, I want that. Can I buy it from you? So it really appears as we look at it, that that's what's really going on. He really wasn't interested in the Lord. He really didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't really just want to know God. And with the way that Peter rebukes him here, the, the kind of language that he uses, such a stinging indictment, I, you know, my personal view here is that Simon probably is not truly converted. This is a false convert. We are looking at someone who seemingly believed on the Lord and was even baptized, but they are not legitimately born again. He is not a believer. So, Peter says, your money perish with you. I love you know, the Phillips translation. It, it says, and forgive me if this is a little too, too rough, but it says, to hell with you and your money. I mean, that is, that is harsh, harsh language that Peter is using here. And that's what he's basically saying. You know, you perish with your money. I don't want your money. You know, Simon thought he could buy the apostles. I could see how that would be um, offensive to the apostles. You think you can buy me? You think, that, you think that I'm doing this for money? You think that you can pay me for this? And so Peter was uh, greatly offended, obviously. Um, but he rebuked him sharply. You know, it's funny that because of this, the, toim, uh, the, the term simony was coined. Have you ever heard of that? That is uh, to describe the selling of sacred things for a profit. And so throughout church history, there have been times where you could actually purchase the, an office within a, a church. You could have a position or a, a title, I should say. That's what I mean by office. And that, that's called uh, simony because he tried to purchase... Uh, something sacred and spiritual. So the, the term was coined because of that. Well, as I said, I think that this is one of the biggest clues that we have that um, Simon was not legit. It seems as though he was not truly converted. And I want to say, let that be a warning. Let that be a warning. Second Corinthians 13.5 talks about this. It says that you ought to examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? So I don't say that to try to scare people or make you doubt your salvation, uh, because the Bible is clear we ought to have assurance of our salvation. We can. I know that I know that I am born again. It is a done deal. And I am safe in the hands of God, safe in the Father's arms. And I cannot be snatched out. Amen? Praise God for that. But you know, there are a lot of people who think that they're in that place and they're really not just because they may have just prayed some prayer at some point, but they didn't really understand what they were getting into or they didn't really mean it. They just kind of quoted some words that, that, were, that was recited for them and there was no change. There was no uh, true, uh, true uh, regeneration that took place in their heart. They weren't truly reborn or, or born again. And I've seen a number of people throughout my, my walk where I would look at them and say, man, I see absolutely nothing that would, would cause me to think that you really are a believer. 
And I, I say that as gently as I can because, um, you know, nobody wants to be in the position of judging somebody. We don't really know ultimately. We don't know what is in a person's heart. The Lord knows. But we certainly can look at the fruit of their life and think, man, I just don't see it. And this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternity. We can't play around with that. And I, I will risk offending somebody if that's what is hanging in the balance. And so if that's you in here today, if you have any concern or fear that you really aren't in the faith, that uh, you really didn't know what you were signing up for, or that you, uh, whatever the case may be, if there's any concern, again, there will be people up here at the end of the service who want to pray for you. People that would want to lead you into a place where you can have that kind of assurance. That's what it's all about. We want to see people know that they know that they are walking in the light and that they are safe for all of eternity, safe in the Father's arms. And I want to encourage you, there's another point that can be taken here. He was going for all the wrong reasons. He was looking at this for what he can get. You know, he didn't really want God, it would appear. He wanted what he could get from God. He wanted to have power. He wanted notoriety. He wanted to have the ability to, to do miracles and lay hands on people and see these kinds of things happen so he could possibly be restored back to his position uh, in the community. Who knows? And we have to be so careful, guys. It is very subtle, but these kinds of things can happen to us. There are so many reasons why people will come to God. And there are so many bad reasons that people will give for you to come to God. And in the day and age that we live in, it's, it's always something around you want to finally experience fulfillment or purpose in your life or, you know, I mean, there, there's any number of things that are kind of dangled out there in front of you to try to entice you to come to the Lord. And that's a very dangerous thing. You know, we, we come to God because we realize first and foremost that we are separated from God and that hell Eternal hell and separation from God, according to the Scriptures, is what awaits us. That is a horrible thing. That is a thing to be feared. And so that's part of it, obviously. And, and Jesus didn't apologize for that. He would regularly preach that, repent, turn from your sins. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, right? Um, but there's an even greater reason than that, and that is to know and love God to know the Creator of the world, to know the One who has made all things, to know the One uh, who dwells in heaven and that we will you know, one day get to see face to face and, and worship and, and be with forever, forevermore. Amen. To know God, to know Him, to love Him, to, to serve Him, that is a glorious, glorious gift that is ours in Christ Jesus. And that's what it's all about. You know, when I came to the Lord, I didn't understand much about the Bible really at all. I just knew that I had a conviction that God was real, that Jesus was real. And I also understood that the life that I had chosen to live for so long was, was completely against all of that. I was an enemy to God. I knew that. But I also realized that I had just messed up so many times throughout my life. I just could not get it together. I just constantly just messing up messing my life up, and uh, just really in bondage to drugs, addiction, the whole nine. And so I finally just came to a... I hit rock bottom, that's what it boils down to. And I didn't have any more fight left in me. And I just knew that I was ready to surrender. And I was ready to submit my life to God. I was tired of fighting, I was tired of running. And I knew that I couldn't do it anymore without Him. So it was as simple as that. I came to God 
and I confess that I believe, I believe He is who He says He is, I confess that I am who He says I am, that I'm a sinner and that I am deserving of hell, you know, all that. But ultimately, I just said, I need You. That's what it boils down to. God, I need You to take my life and do with it whatever You will. If you can, whatever you can do with my life, whatever you can make of it, it's yours and I'll follow you. It was just as simple as that. And God did. He restored my life. He has done a wonderful thing in my, in my life. Wonderful, many wonderful things. And so, but it was just as simple as that, you know. Um, and so we have to be careful. Be careful what our motivations are. We want to aim for the highest reasons for why we come to the Lord. Uh, because sometimes they don't line up with God whatsoever and you might find yourself on the outside and not even know it. You know, I think about the, the story in Matthew where people came and said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many wonderful works in your name? And he said, you know what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, of iniquity. That's a scary verse. That is very sobering. And we have to be careful about that. That was... That was uh, kind of in a sense where Simon was at. Well, when Peter rebukes him, Simon doesn't really seem to repent. It doesn't seem like he says, okay, I'm going to change my ways and I'm going to really put my trust in the Lord. None of that. He just says, pray to God that whatever you just said doesn't happen. That, that was his response. That to me doesn't seem like legitimate repentance. He didn't really turn away from those things and turn to God. And we're kind of left there. That was it for Simon. That's all we know. And then verse 25, it says that they, they went on, they testified and preached the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem. They were preaching the gospel in many villages uh, of the Samaritans. And that, that's it. That's all we know about Simon. Well, moving on. Now Philip is going to go um, down to Gaza. So he's going to go back down south. So verse 26 now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. Now, this is interesting to me. It seems counterintuitive that he would be in a place of great revival, wonderful things are happening, and then the Spirit says, go, go to the desert. And it's like, okay. Well, he goes. The Spirit says, go, and he goes. And then he comes across this Ethiopian man of great authority. We're told he's a, a eunuch and that he... Um, has a, a position here uh, working for Candace, the queen. So in your notes here, just kind of some technical details about all that. I'll just read through it. kind of gives us a little bit of an understanding of what's going on here. So in those days, Ethiopia was a large kingdom south of Egypt. And the eunuch can refer to one who had been emasculated or to a government official. It is likely that he was both since Luke refers to him as a eunuch and one who had held authority as a government official in the queen's court. That of a treasurer, much like a minister of finance or a secretary of treasury. And Candace probably is not a name, but it's a title, like Pharaoh or Caesar. And so that's who this guy is. And so he has come all the way to, uh, to Israel here and um, 
clearly, on some level, he is seeking the Lord. He is uh, seeking God. And he's reading Isaiah the prophet. He's reading Isaiah the prophet. This is fascinating to me. And so the man was seeking God, and where was he seeking Him? In His Word. Seeking Him in His Word. But what's even cooler to me is that God revealed Himself to this man. The Spirit said, go to Philip, and Philip went. And so against all conventional wisdom, the place where all of these people are and all of this stuff is happening, he leaves all of that and goes to where this one guy is, out in the middle of nowhere, out in the desert. And this guy was seeking after God. He was seeking God in His Word, and God showed up. God revealed Himself intentionally to this man. And that is so encouraging to me. That's our God. Our God, He has revealed Himself to us. First off, the Scriptures say that God has revealed Himself in a general way. We look around at creation and we see that there is a Creator. That in and of itself testifies to the works of a, of a Creator God. But then God has given us specific revelation. God has revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. There's so much that we know about God when you look at Jesus. You know, He said uh, in the Gospels, I believe it was to Philip, the, the disciple, not the same Philip here, and, you know, he says, Have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus came to, to really demonstrate or reveal the Father to us. There's so much that we know about God just by looking at Jesus. I remember thinking that one time and praying, God, I want to know you more. Reveal yourself to me. And I was reminded of that. Just look at Jesus. You want to know God better? Look at Jesus. And so this guy was seeking God and God revealed himself to this man. That is wonderful. And that's my encouragement to people so often. Just, just seek the Lord. Just seek His face. Cry out to God. Pray to Him. Ask God to reveal Himself to you. Read the Word. Look in the Bible. So often we tell people to go to the, the Gospel of John. But if you just get into the Bible and you say, God, I want to know. Reveal Yourself to me. Speak to me. God will do that. God does that. God reveals Himself to us when we really want to see Him, when we really want to know Him, when we really want to find Him, God will show up. God will make Himself known. God does reveal Himself to us. Praise God for that. Isn't that wonderful? And so we see that happen here. And it, you know, this to me seems like a much more legitimate experience here. Uh, this guy, he came from a long way to, to seek God and to come to the place where God's people dwelt. And he acquired a scroll of Isaiah. And that would have been very expensive. And he's sitting here. He's trying to read this thing. He's struggling. And so verse 30, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and to sit with him. The place in the Scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the Scripture, preached Jesus to him. I love this. I love these verses. 
And so the first question that, that Philip asked the guy, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And that's such a great question, you know, because for so many of us, you know, we, we, including myself, will look at the Bible and think, man, what in the world does that mean? You know, so often you read the, the, the Scriptures and it can be so confusing. And so he comes up and he says, do you know what you're reading? And you know what, guys, it's important that we understand we don't just read the Bible to read it. We don't read it just to say that we did it. We actually want to understand the things that we are reading. That is a critical question. Do you understand what you are reading? And we, we should. We can and we should understand. And that's the thing about it. This is spiritually understood. This doesn't make sense to an unbeliever. If you really, to, to truly plumb the depths of the Word of God... You need the Spirit of God. This is God's Word, breathed out by His Spirit. People, the men of God, were inspired by the Spirit of God to, to pen the words of God. And that's what we need to truly build, to understand the, the truth of the Scriptures. And we can. We can have that understanding through God's Holy Spirit. And we should. It's important, guys. For those of you that read your Bible, all of you, I hope, Seriously, take the time to understand what you're reading. To really try to get to the depths of it. Soak it in. Consider not just what it means, but are you living it out? Pray it back to the Lord. Really spend time with God as you are soaking in His Word. And do it regularly. Regularly. Because you will dry up if you don't. It seems so basic and it's so easy to get away from, but we need to be in God's Word. If you want to meet with the Lord, if you want to find God, if you want to seek Him, this is where you go. This is where you're going to find Him. God has revealed Himself to us specifically in His Word. The person of His Son in His Word. So then He says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? I love that. I love that. Because so often that is the case. So often, I mean, we, we get frustrated and think, man, I just don't know what this means. I don't understand. How am I ever going to figure this out unless someone guides me? And this is a beautiful picture of discipleship. You should be guiding people through the Word. If you have a pretty decent understanding of the Bible, I would encourage everyone in here, look, seriously, guys, seriously, as Christians, we before the Lord are charged to be investing in other people. And so we should have someone in our lives that is pouring into us. There will always be people who are farther along on this Christian path than we are. And so we should seek those people out and say, would you invest in me? Would you mentor me on some level? But then we should also be those who are doing that for other people. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. I guarantee there's probably someone who's not been in it as long as you have. And there you do have something to offer. And so, guys, you've got to get in the game. You know, if you are not, if you are not uh, serving the Lord in that way, if you're not investing in people, that's, that's what this is all about. This is people business here, what we're talking about. It's not about just showing up to the church and listening to a Bible study. As important as that is, and singing and worshiping, that's all great. But it's more than that, guys. We are the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are His people. And we have been called by God to, to serve one another and to invest in each other and to reach out and share our faith with the people that are in our lives that don't know the Lord, but then to also try to come along other people and help them out. Are you doing that? Are you in the game? Are you? And so this is a beautiful picture to me of discipleship. This guy is struggling through the Word. He doesn't understand. Philip comes along and says, Do you know what you're reading? He says, Man, how in the world am I supposed to know? I need someone to help me. So Philip was all too eager to do just that. Now let me just say this. 
This is not to say that you have to have somebody to interpret the Bible for you. Because there are denominations out there who would tell you that. You can't know this. You can't understand this. this. So I've got to interpret this for you. Be very careful about that. Okay, there is a time and a place for helps. Reading commentaries, asking people's thoughts on scriptures, listening to sermons, Bible teachers, preachers, all that is great. But beware people who would tell you that you cannot know the Bible unless they interpret it for you. Okay, and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they're big on that. They believe what they believe because that's what the higher-ups have told them. And if you try to tell them, well, this is what the Bible says, they'll say, well, there's your first mistake right there. You think you can interpret it for yourself. Watch out for that, okay? Now, he's reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Now, obviously, the Scripture chapters and numbers weren't in what he was reading, but that's what he was reading. And this is a prophecy about Christ. I would encourage you, read Isaiah 53. It is a glorious text that is prophetic of the, the suffering Messiah, Christ, and that's what he's reading. And so then he asks the question. He says, well, who is this speaking about? Is it himself? Is it someone else? I love that. That's a great question. It makes me think about, I, you know, I have a number of people that I know they're kind of new in the Word and they ask some of the coolest questions. And they may think it's dumb or it's, it's overly simple, but I'm, I'm eating it up. I love it. You know, I have people that text me questions or Marco Polo, it's an app, and they'll send me stuff to listen to my sermons or other people. That's, I would encourage you to do that. Read your Bible and ask questions. Ask, find someone that you can ask questions to and try to be that for someone else who, who is um, not quite as far along as you are. But that's really simple. You know, he's like, I don't understand. Who's this talking about? Simple as that. And so he takes that as an opportunity to preach Christ. And so he does. He preaches Christ and uh, it says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the Scriptures preached Jesus to him. And he preached Jesus. And evidently he talked about the Great Commission, the work of the cross, the, the resurrection. You know, he probably talked about baptism because here in verse 36, Philip asked the question. So he says, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. This sounds to me like a legitimate conversion, does it not? I mean, from beginning to end, this sounds beautiful. And so, evidently, Philip must have said something to him about baptism because the first thing he says here is, well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then he says this, if you believe with all of your heart, then you may, that Jesus is the Son of God. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he was baptized. That's awesome. And again, I would encourage you guys, Christians, if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. That was something that they did with urgency, as you see here. This guy had just, he's reading the Scriptures. Philip is sent to him by the Holy Spirit. He explains to him what's going on. He, he preaches Christ to him. He says, I believe in Jesus. I believe He's the Son of God. And he wants to be baptized right there on the spot. And that, that really, in many ways... That is the picture of one who has been crucified with Christ. They have died. They have been, 
taken down into the grave. That's what the waters represent. And then they, they come up. They are born again. They are risen into the newness of life. And that's what that is a picture of. And so um, I, I feel very confident that that's what has happened here. And so Philip, this is odd, he is, he's snatched away. He's caught up. The word is harpazo. It's a word that we, uh, the Greek word for other places in the Scriptures where we, we believe it's talking about the rapture, to be snatched out of there or caught up. And so um, supernaturally, he's taken away. But it doesn't phase uh, the Ethiopian guy at all. It says that he went on his way rejoicing. Man, he's born again. He's baptized. He's put his faith in Christ. He's excited. He has the joy of the Lord. There's nothing sweeter than that. So I just want to close with that. Um, let's, let's close right there. And I just want a couple of closing things here. A couple of points for us to take away. You know, let's be, let's be very sure about our standing with God. Let's be very sure about where we stand, that we know that we know, that we have confidence. If you don't, I want to encourage you guys to come up during this uh, closing song and, and seek prayer so that you can know. Let's be genuine in our pursuit of God. Let's go after God for the right reasons. The, the highest of all is love because we want to know Him, we want to love Him, we want to walk with Him, we want to serve Him. Let's seek God in His Word. Let's be people who make a habit of that. This is where we go when we want to find God, when we want to meet with the Lord. We seek Him out in His Word. Let's trust as we seek the Lord that the Lord is going to reveal Himself to us. You know, the Scriptures are clear about that. We should have that kind of confidence. We should not be double-minded. We should believe that if we seek the Lord, if we knock, we're going to find. You know, the Lord delights to reveal Himself. And lastly, let's be a people who are marked by joy, just like the Ethiopian here. He left in great joy, rejoicing. So on that note, let's close with a song and let's sing with joy. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You reveal Yourself to us in Your Word. Thank You for all the glorious things that we have considered today. And I pray now as we begin to wrap up the service, that we would, uh, we would have a, f a few moments to, to sing, to pray, to thank You, God, for Your kindness and Your goodness to us. And I pray that this would be true of all of us, Lord, that we would sincerely and legitimately know You and that we would know that we know and that we would be people who seek Your face regularly, trusting that You will reveal Yourself to us. May we be a people who are marked with joy because we know You. And because we have sought You, because we have found You, because You have revealed Yourself to us, let us not be like Simon. Father, let that be a great warning to us all. Let us be like the Ethiopian man and uh, let us have that joy and that assurance. So we thank You, we praise You, in Jesus' name, Amen.